I recently had the chance to go on mic with two absolute legends in the Agile podcasting industry. Ryan Ripley from Agile for Humans and Vasco Duarte from Scrum Master Toolbox. These guys are absolutely brilliant. I loved having the conversation and we put together this little holiday special for you. We talk about all things Agile and a little bit about the US election, but generally just had a ton of fun. I hope you enjoy. That's this week on the Badass Agile Podcast. Greetings, team. Welcome to the Badass Agile Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Williams. Hey, gentlemen, how you doing? Hey, it's Chris and Ryan. How are you guys doing? Hey, we are. Uh, we're in day thirty-seven of the U.S. election. Uh, oh, we're, no. <laughs> we're living through. This might uh, actually go out at that time. <laughs> I know it might. It, yeah. I'm sure they will still be counting by the time we get this podcast loaded. But everything's going all right here. Uh, I'm 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 safely tucked away in the Midwest, so I'm kind of like I'm in I'm in, I'm in that flyover country that no one cares about. So it's kind of quiet. Right, right. But you're in the you're in the red zone, aren't you? Did we are Indiana in the red zone. Red? So yeah, Indiana yeah. is very much a red state. Um, we have yeah. a few spots of, of blue, but yeah, I'm in the red zone. You know what? They, it's so funny you guys call it the red and the blue because you know what the reds are in Europe, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. It's Kinda, the opposite yeah. of the reds in the U.S. It's like, you know, the, the two extremes. There you go. Yeah, so we, let's, we won't get too much into that, but it is, you know, still, that, that's the big news over here. So that's what's got everyone occupied. It is big but, news. I keep checking, see when they call a winner. Yeah, we'll see. We should have one. I think Nevada put the abacus away, and now they got some calculators out, and maybe Georgia <laughs> can learn how to count. And Pennsylvania, you're the new Florida. Sorry, guys. Oh, but man. Uh, the nice thing is... Ryan, you're you making so many friends right now. I, I know. <laughs> well, there's a little frustration going on, right? But uh, the nice thing is, you know, when Florida in 2000 had this problem, you know what it caused? The hanging caused chads, the pregnant chads. And but I'll tell you what, it caused a, a serious inspection and adaptation, right? Almost like they were using empiricism because now as soon as 7 o'clock hits, Florida just reports. They have one of the best systems ever. Most of I the think, world uh, does too. <laughs> exactly. I think these other states are going to go back and go, we don't want to be national news ever again. So that's like four or five more states that are going to actually have a good system after this. It'll be good. Fingers crossed. Fingers for crossed. For the good man. of everybody. Yeah. And we're right next door to you. So whatever you do affects us because I'm up uh, just north of the border there. So yeah, if I'm sure go Canada's crazy. watching this just like, yeah, yeah, a little what bit. are they doing? Yeah. So listen, guys, we first talked about this. We thought this could be like a summit of, you know, three veteran podcasters to talk about the latest and greatest. And uh, in podcast uh, technology. No, 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 no. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> and the, the, I think the way we framed it was blowing up agile, really. So let's take it and dissect it and really, really strong arm it and see what state are we in and what what kind of uh, what kinds of things do we see coming for the future? What matters? What are we doing well? What are we not doing well? And uh, just time to throw some a little bit of a public retrospective, and... right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. So let's rock and roll. We had some questions that we had jammed on. So you know, before we do that, for those who have heard of one or two of us, but not all three, let's do a quick roundtable. Vasco, let us know who you are. You know what your podcast is and uh, what you're up to these days, real quick. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm Vasco Duarte, uh, and uh, obviously nobody pronounces my name like that. Just like I never pronounced the guest's name correctly on the podcast. My podcast is the Scrum Master Toolbox Podcast. It's a daily podcast that uh, hopefully, that's what we hope, inspires Scrum Masters to action every day. So uh, it's a daily format, uh, really concise on on the topics that matter the most for, for Scrum Masters, and it goes out every day, hopefully inspiring our listeners to, to do something different every day. Beautiful, beautiful. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Ryan Ripley. I host Agile for Humans. I co-wrote a book called Fixing Your Scrum, Practical Solutions to Common Scrum Problems. I speak all over, well, I used to speak all over the country at conferences and all over the place. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I'm a professional Scrum trainer with scrum.org, so I teach a lot of the uh, the two and three day courses for uh, scrum.org. I'm also uh, teaching courses for Pro Kanban. So maybe we'll talk about Pro Kanban at oh. some point. Uh, Daniel Vacanti has launched a new initiative uh, to bring, uh, to bring I think, some sanity to the Kanban space uh, that's pretty much dominated by one other player. Um, I think he's looking to simplify Kanban and bring things back. And so I'm, I've spent a lot of time there. Uh, plus, Todd and I have been really spending a lot of time on uh, liberating structures and some things like that. So hopefully a lot of things we can talk about there as well. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. I'm Chris from the Badass Agile Podcast. Mine is a little bit more about the you know, the, the becoming of a person, an Agile coach, a Scrum Master, a practitioner, less about the how to do it because I think there's so much good coverage on the how. So I'm really focused on, you know, what kind of characteristics, habits, and mindsets do leaders need to have. And uh, I pulled it from an interesting space, having been a musician, an audio engineer, a boxing instructor, and, and trained up on coaching through a group of ex-Navy SEALs and how they do what they do to survive and thrive in the you know weirdest and hardest conditions in the world. So, so I actually came up through tech. I was a tech trainer in the early days for Microsoft and then ended up doing this. So um, we've all been at it for 15 years, 10, 15 years minimum, I would assume. So one of the questions that came up first is, you know, let's, let's start angry. What, what pisses us off about the current state of Agile as we experience it daily today? I'm pissed off and I'm not taking it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess I'll, I'll jump in here. I've, you know, Todd and I have been talking a lot lately about, we've been working with a lot of companies who have been sold these million dollar, multi-million dollar transformations. uh, And, you know, people are slapping different frameworks and different methodologies on top of really deep rooted cultural issues and they're not getting anywhere. And once the money runs out, the consultants go away and they're not better off. And, I'm really tired of watching that play out over and over and over again. Um, it's just turned into this big money grab where big box consulting firms just slap a bunch of consultants and and others into place. They clear their bench, charge as much as they can. They don't really do anything and then leave. And it just, um, that is just perpetuated over and over and over again. It leaves, a, it just makes everything more difficult. You know, I'm more than happy to come in and clean up and, and try to teach professional scrum and, and help companies uh, kind of undo the damage of these big box consultants, but it's like, oh, can we just skip that step and and really learn how to work in new ways? And I, I don't know, what do you guys think? Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I see the same happening. Uh, looking back, I saw the same happening in Finland. Uh, let's say late 2000, so like 2008, 2009, uh, we heard through the grapevine that uh, Accenture had created an agile practice and they had a 200-page agile manual. 
Um, and, and then, of course, I was working with, uh, at that time, 2008, I was working with uh, one of the first safe adoptions. It was called Agile Release Train at that time, ART, uh, which I thought was kind of a cool name, ART, right? Because Agile is mm-hmm. all about art. There's no science to working with people. It's all about living in the moment, understanding what's going on and reacting. And then, of course, failing, but learning quickly and then adjusting, right? And mm-hmm. uh, if, if I take what, what Ryan is said and, and turn it all the way up to 11, I would say that we have lost our way. Uh, we were talking about, uh, or Ryan was talking about bringing Kanban back to its origins, simplify it. Well, I would like to remind everybody that this whole Agile thing did not start with Scrum and it didn't start with Kanban either. It started with uh, the small talk community doing what they called at that time extreme programming. XP. And if we go all the way back to the roots, extreme programming was taking the best practices and, and just turning it all the way up to 11. Um, we, we hear a lot about, you know, how safe doesn't have a customer in the big picture and so on. Do you know that XP had a practice called customer in the room? So every team had a customer, literally, that's what they called it, the customer that told them whether they were going in the right direction. So if, if I go to what pisses me off is that we're forgetting what it was that we started back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, and I'm not talking about technical practices. We've forgotten those very much, that's for sure. But, but I'm talking about everything else, like even the, the whole idea of what Agile is about. Agile is not about delivering more crap faster. It's about delivering less, but delivering what matters. It's about focusing on value. It's about iterating quickly. And uh, uh, so the theme in in my uh, presence here on this episode is going to be, you know, how do we turn Agile all the way up to 11, just like XP did back in the the late 90s? I like that. I feel that Let's think about who buys the most Agile right now. It's either banks or insurance companies tend to have the biggest budgets to put Agile in play. And so they're of a certain size by their nature. If you look at the startup community, if you look at small enterprise, small medium business, if you look beyond tech and you look at how companies are are, are pivoting and adapting now during COVID-19, I still see a lot of really good Agile, really customer focused Agile. They get it because they have to. They're hungry. It's easy when you go around a small business to see the customer desire to say, how do we want our customers to feel? That question is present in everybody's mind. We want customers to feel cared for, special, part of something good. We want them to have not features, you know, we stop talking about features and what buttons do, but what capabilities do we give them? And again, I prefer to talk about that in terms of feelings. Customers feel safe, customers feel tended to, cared for. Whereas the minute you bring it into a large-scale environment, things start getting compromised. Things get lost in translation as we try to make this work at scale. So I think that the way that we apply it, by limiting it only to software, that's a mistake. By making compromises, we try to scale it and make it go everywhere in the enterprise. I believe that's a mistake as well. And I'll echo what you said, Vasco, that we can't forget the customer in the room. Where are they? The definition of scaling, I think, has been completely uh, just hijacked as well. Though. You know, when I when I look at these these large companies and scaling, I, quite honestly, most of them shouldn't even be adopting agile yet. 
they have such highly coupled and tightly coupled architectures that no matter which framework or methodology or practice you put in place, they cannot be successful. Right? They will, they will, status quo will continue that the architecture of, the, of their solutions will pull them back to, like if they have a monolithic architecture, they will get pulled back to a monolithic waterfall safe type way of working. Right. And so until that gets sorted out, which is, you know, again, I'm, I'm biased. And so I, I call that out early. Um, but I, what I like about Nexus, what Scrum.org does with scaling, it basically says, look, we're going to decouple everything and then see where we're at. Right. This is not a unfortunately scaling is, is taken as we're going to do everything big. And I think that's the wrong definition. I, I think that's a that's a really horrible way to look at scaling. I think scaling is actually the practice or process of. Uh, decoupling and descaling what you're doing. You know, if you well, have this so big monolithic architecture, break it down. If you have these big monolithic teams, break them down and decouple and create these independent squads of teams that can deliver. And then let's talk about how we amplify their effectiveness. But until until you decouple and and actually you know get your architectures right, none of these work. So I think you you touched on a point, Ryan, that I I want to. You know, turn all the way up to 11. That's that's going to be the theme of my presence here on this episode, which is that it, architecture drives process. And uh, uh, of course, we all know Conway's law. I mean, all three of us know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know. And Conway's law basically states that the structure of the organization follows the architecture of the software or vice versa. The architecture of the software follows the structure of the organization. And when we talk about these big companies like, you know, banks and insurance uh, or Nokia, where I worked uh, in, in the late 2000s before 2011 when I left, um, these companies have so much money coming in, they have no reason to change. Uh, but of course, people's careers are still at stake and, and there's something that needs to improve, or at least in, you know, at least on paper. Uh, so Agile is, a, is an easy sell for those companies because somebody can get a promotion by bringing in a few Agile consultants, paying them a lot of money, but of course also making changes. And, and the cool thing about Agile is that even badly implemented Agile transforms positively many organizations out there. So let's not forget that uh, Agile is not a placebo. Even small things, even save, can transform positively an organization like a bank. I've seen it happening, even though I knew they were reaching maybe 1% of their potential, it was still a hell of a lot better than, than what was there before. Uh, but coming back to that idea that Ryan started, architecture, technology, the way we develop software, this is all XP. Like Scrum was not about technology. Kanban was not about technology. XP was about technology. XP was us, the people who lived in the software development, you know, raising up and saying, guys, this isn't working, right? We need a better approach. And, and that's what XP is about. That, that's what all of those practices are about. It's about how to make the software work so that the business can be flexible and agile, right? It, and we, let's, let's not forget that the way we develop software catastrophically affects, and, and I say that, you know, catastrophically in the sense that it negatively affects in a very bad way how we develop processes. It, a lot of people have the illusion that you change the process, things get better. But as Ryan pointed out, and I'm trying to kind of illustrate also with this idea, you know, big banks, of course, they're not going to change their architecture. Well, the, pro the problem is if you don't change your architecture, you can't change your processes because Conway Law already tells you that they're going to be the same. They're going to mirror each each other. Technology and processes and structure are going to mirror each other. 
You know, it's interesting, Vasco. I, I spent a lot of time in the finance uh, industry working as an internal employee at, at some, some of the largest uh, firms in the country. And uh, one of the dirty secrets of, of, of the banking industry and of finance is that, look, there's pretty front ends on everything, right? I mean, it's all, you know, React, whatever, all these fun, nice interfaces. But when you get to the back end systems that are driving financial companies and banks, it's all mainframe every single one of them and so they still have not gotten off of the platforms from the 1970s and 80s they're still running as400s in the background they still have you know teleterms and all these other crazy things going on in the background and so when when they start talking about yeah we're going to go agile by when i was internal i'm like what are you talking about like you're on a monolithic system that you know the admin systems on the back ends of most of these financial of all of these financial firms um as far as i know are still running dated technology where you cannot move fast, where it's COBOL, it's COBOL. And so, you know, a lot of the, the leadership in these companies, they say, well, it works, why change it? And my question back has always been, what's the average age of the person working on these on the back ends? And that number has gone up year over year. It's like, oh, now they're 55, now they're 56, now they're 57. Oh, wait, three of them just retired at once. And it's like, this is the fragility that, and this is not even an agile issue. This is architecture. This is this is longevity planning. This is um, these are things that Scrum, Kanban, and XP do not fix. It's uh, but these things will get Scrum, Kanban, and XP will get bolted on top, and it might it might help a little. But as to Vasco's point, it's one percent, right? Maybe they're seeing one percent of the benefit, uh, but until these like systemic things get dealt with. Uh, you know, industries like that, I think they're just tossing tens of millions of dollars away on transformations every year that that aren't going to get them where they need to be. Right. Let me ask you this. For people who are listening, I think they want to hear solutions. I think that, you know, Vasco, you mentioned you want to inspire people to act. Ryan, you're, a, you're an instructor. You're trying to make better practitioners. You're trying to fix broken scrum. I'm in the same boat. What? How do we fix this? What? What should we be doing instead of just saying, "Okay, you're offering the money. It's you know good dollar rate. I'll take it, and I'll do broken Scrum or I'll do crappy Agile." Um, I don't want to turn this show into a complaint session. What are some solutions? What are some things that could work or do work? So what? What I've been focused on. What I? I'm trying to get teams of people, very small teams of people in very large organizations working well. And, and through that, we can identify the very local specific things that are going on. And then my focus over the past four or five years has been on the leadership side, right? So I worked my way up through the, the executive chains of companies. And, and I've seen where if leadership is of the mind that architecture is important and small teams who can deliver independently are important, we can make headway as well. And so I think starting with leadership, can we get the mindset in place that's needed in order to address these very big things? Can we get small teams, these little local pockets of people working in a way that, that makes sense, that expose the issues, that start showing you know, progress and success? Um, can we also resist the urge to scale and optimize too early, right? Can we, can we just get, can we learn the practices and, and work uh, with these small groups and then get the leadership mindset in place. And then over a, no, a period of years, not months, a period of multiple years, can we, can we grow that skill? But also I'm encouraging companies to move away from the consultant mindset, right? You're not just throwing bodies at software uh, when it comes to an agile uh, adoption. 
right? You should actually bring people in to teach your own individuals in your organization how to do these things so that you can organically grow this out. If you rely on a consultant for three, four, five years, you're not learning anything. You're throwing money at a problem. And so I, I, those are the things that, that I've been really focused on. And I think those actually lead to the solutions that, that lead to sustainable agility uh, for organizations. You make less money, right? But your outcomes are much better. And for me, it's also, I think a lot of it is I'm outcome driven, right? I wanna, I, if I teach a two day scrum class, I don't care if anyone gets certified. I could care less if you get the certificate. But if you turn around and do something awesome for your team after I teach the, the two day scrum master class and you turn around and you, you, you do something that removes an impediment, you do something that, that just you know, empowers your team to do something even more amazing, I'm happy. Like that's right. what that's what I'm after, right? So I think it's it's a mindset shift, but it's also understanding that this is not a consulting thing anymore. This is a growing organically. You know, it, it's just I think everyone has to shift the mindset, including the agile coaches and the so-called agile coaches and, and practitioners. It's it, it's not a body game. This is not like throw bodies at a problem kind of game. It's a you're changing hearts and minds, and, and that's where yes. I think we need to get to. Awesome. I have a couple questions that came out of that. Maybe the biggest one is when you're choosing that Pathfinder or initial project, how do you choose it? Because the bank or the whomever, not to target banks, but they're going to want you to work on the problems that they feel are most pressing, yeah. but they may not be the best ones to start with. How, where would you start? Oh, I, I want to go after the, the nasty problems that no one wants to look at, right? I want to, I want to go after those uh, with, but I want to, I want to be, I want to be able to so here's the thing. We'll go after the most nasty problem, but we need control over this. We need some autonomy. So we need to be able to pick the A players. We need to be able to, mm -hmm. not even just the A players. We need to have a team that, of people who want to self-select in, who want to be a part of this, who have all the skills. Like there's some, there's some rules that actually have to be followed. But, you know, bad scrum happens because people ignore the scrum guide or they don't read it or they don't think about it. Um, you know, if we're going to do this, we need a self-organizing team who can decide how best to do their work, who can make architect architectural changes on the fly, um, who have all the skills that are needed to deliver an increment, uh, that also have support from the organization, uh, where some organizational, um, you know, rules and regulations are in place as well, and the leadership team supports them and gets impediments removed. There's a bunch of stuff we need, but with that with those caveats in place let's go after the nasty problem and prove success right i always say willing minds and projects that fit are the things that you want as an identifier yeah. right so what about you vasco what do you think uh so how, how do we go after those nasty problems the ones that had really that have real business impact uh as an example i was working with a bank and <clears throat> they want to try a new pricing uh scheme uh for mortgages mortgages are uh, for most of the banks, they're, they're where the big money is. Of course, there's investment side, but those in Europe, at least, are typically separated. So when you talk about consumer banking, you talk about basically loans and, and products like that. Uh, and uh, th this particular bank, they wanted to test a new pricing. And, and what did they want to do? Well, first, they wanted to have like this upfront planning of what the pricing might be. Then they needed to update all the backend systems. And then they wanted to then go live and, you know, train the, 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 the people who are in the, in the front line talking to the customers. And then I asked them, wait a minute, um, why don't we just test that pricing in one branch? Like tomorrow. We don't need to wait that much. Okay, well, yeah, tomorrow is not possible. 
but uh, we could choose a branch that has a lot of people coming in for, for mortgage uh, loans, and um, we could train those people. And how many people are there? Well, in, in this particular branch we're talking about was in the capital city in the Nordic country. Uh, they said, maybe there's four people we need to train. Well, great, because we can train four people in a couple of hours. Like, we don't need to even plan it. We just get them into a meeting and, and we train them. Uh, and what they ended up doing was a basic Excel sheet with the new pricing that the the people in the front line could actually use while talking to the customers, come up with the, the pricing and make an offer, right? And this is the, this mindset that I just described is totally different from what you get in most companies. Most companies will want to create the project. They will want to have a budget for it. They will want to have the budget approved. And of course, the budget is only approved once a year, which is when you do the yearly budget. So you need to wait, you know, half a year on average <laughs> to get that approved. And then you start the project. Well, no, actually you don't because first you need to recruit the people because everybody's busy. So you need to go out and fight with the middle managers and, and, and get people assigned to your project. And then when they are assigned, then you get started. But of course, there's a lot of other stuff going. So you're in a queue for most of the backend systems you need to change. Like, this is crazy. Why are we still doing this? The pricing might be totally wrong. Are you going to change your backend systems and then learn that it doesn't work and then change them again? Well, good luck five years from now getting that done. Right. So my solution is, of course, I've been talking about this quite publicly. It's no estimates and no estimates is a set of practices. It's it's turning agile all the way up to 11 is if we can deliver something tomorrow, we don't wait for the day after. It's not about planning a six month project It's about breaking a six month project into 30 minutes, three zero minute increments, just like XP extreme programming did with TDD test driven development is about changing changes that usually uh, about moving changes that usually take half an hour, one hour, two hours, four hours into micro cycles, right? The test, the, the red green cycle that they call when you write a test to change something. And of course the test doesn't pass because you haven't changed anything. And then you do the change, you run the test again, and now it's green. And then you refactor, red, green, refactor. That cycle, we need to bring it up to the business. We need to bring XP up to the business. If you have an idea, right out in a day, 24 hours. That's what I teach in the No Estimates Workshop. And that's the whole idea of Agile. It is not about getting better at planning. It's about getting better at learning so that you don't need to plan. And herein lies, for me, the biggest challenge for us as an Agile community. Planning, big design up front, big planning up front. They are still prevalent even in agile organizations, not, not the banks that, that we've been talking about, even in organizations that are quote unquote adopting the right scrum or the right Kanban, right? We're still doing six month plans. We're still, Asco, give me the still doing full year budgets, <laughs> right? Tell me and, how to do it. Yeah, no yeah. estimates. That's We've it. run into this. We were, well, you're gonna get us in trouble with no estimates there. Yes, but, uh, I am. But uh, I, you know what? I. The, the the quest for the the holy grail playbook of agile is is alive and well like people want and it doesn't exist you cannot plan complexity perfectly there is no perfect process there's good practices for today and guess what we inspect we adapt we try new things tomorrow mm -hmm. now the scrum is a framework and it gives you some guardrails that so it's not chaotic kanban is i, I would I, People are going to, I'm going to get a lot of nasty tweets about this. I think it's like a flow framework. And so it gives you some guardrails on flowing value through your system. I hope people are okay with that. Um, 
but it doesn't tell you from from step one to one million how to get to product delivery nirvana, right? It's that's not the purpose. The purpose is small incremental learnings. Like Scrum is not a project management framework. If you're using it that way, you wasted your money, right? It's a product discovery framework. As Vasco said, it's a learning framework. We're learning where our impediments are. We're learning where our customers want us to go. We're learning what our capabilities are. We're learning about our organizational dysfunction. We're learning about the awesome things going on in our org. And we take those learnings and we, we use them to be opportunistic in the marketplace because there's opportunities in the market. And if we can't execute quickly, they're lost. Right. And then our competitors get to take advantage and then we lose if we can't. And that's why we improve the organization and we re, we remove all these things. We, you know, we simplify the architecture. We bring XP practices back. We're doing all of these things. The purpose is not to say we are the most agile company on the planet. That's worthless. Right. The purpose right. is to be opportunistic in the market. And if you're not right. doing that, you're wasting your money. Like, don't you are. don't go down this path. You're just going to make people frustrated and upset. So and some uh, consultants see, reaching the process, but that's okay. How about you, Chris? Yeah. Uh, so on, on this one, I'll just sum up by saying I think that I get upset when I see big companies wanting to benefit like disruptors, but they won't behave like disruptors, which means kind of everything that Ryan just said, that we're here to learn. We're here to use Agile properly for what it was intended, not as a, uh, a, a magic pill to make things go faster. So that's for, that's the that's the piss off one for me. Is that we want agile but I think we want it for the wrong reasons. But let me go one further on something that that surfaced maybe it was what you were saying Ryan because you're a trainer that we look at organizations that are you know bringing us into to become agile whether that means the right thing or the wrong thing and we test 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 them and we wave our fingers because you know i went in today and we talked about what agile might look like for them and they started talking about jira and i'm so disappointed in people talking about tools over blah 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 and yet i was at an agile conference yesterday and i don't want to embarrass anybody because the guy who set this up is brilliant and i love him but i use it as an example to illustrate something it's not a criticism but he had the great idea of running a little coaching forum so that coaches could get together in between the sessions and just talk about the art and science of coaching. What a great idea. So we have a meeting. First sign that there's going to be trouble. We have a meeting booked for one hour to talk about it. And when we get together, guess what we talked about the whole time? All agile coaches, mind you. Okay. What do we talk about the entire hour? The tool that we're going to use to make the coach corner fly. We didn't talk about how we're going to make this kind of awesome <laughs> for coaches. What can we do that would be like blow away value that nobody's ever seen before? So for those of us who are trainers, who work with the agile practitioners, how, you know, we blame the companies and we poo-poo the companies, but in a way, aren't many of us also behaving badly around Agile too, as coaches and scrum so masters and practitioners? There are two gentlemen in South Africa who have solved this problem. And I and they Kevin Trathui, uh was at the top of this, and Danny Rowe, uh, I think partnered partnered with him on this. It's called the Spine Model. I love the Spine Model. It keeps me focused on what's important. Uh, basically, this model. I think every Agile coach should go to SpineModel.info and actually learn this. You start at needs, you move to values, you set your principles, you talk about practices, and then you identify tools, right? We always jump to tools. And actually, like I think spine model is something that should become big, but it isn't. If, if I have to, I'll write the 100-page book 
Bosco, maybe you'll help me or Chris. We'll jump. We'll we'll do a quick publishing and, and get it out. I think it's super important information. You know, starting at the needs, the values, the principles, the practices, and then the tools, right? Because the tools are important, right? Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. The word over does not mean an exclusion of. The word mm -hmm. over does not mean get rid of. The word mm -hmm. over means we value individuals and interactions over the tools. And when we violate that principle, what we're doing is we're letting the tools drive how we work together. And that's a mistake. But when I see JIRA at an organization, I'm not upset. Mm -hmm. I can plug actionable agile right into JIRA and get all the data I need for the flow metrics. You know, Vasco, I, I, I kind of agree. I tend to agree with you about planning. I want to see the flow metrics, right? You know, I, I've, I've gave for years, I've given the same no estimate talks. And, and so I, I'm a big fan of, of limited planning, but the flow metrics really excite me. So if a, if a, if a team has JIRA, I'm going to plug actionable agile into, into JIRA. And I'm going to look at their service level expectations. I'm going to look at their cycle time scatter plots. I'm going to look at some Monte Carlo simulation that shows when things could land. I'm going to make sure that that's updating repeatedly so that when it, when new information occurs, we learn from it and it updates the forecast. It updates uh, actionable agile and we can still be uh, we, we can still have a decent forecast of what's happening. And so I, I've as I've gotten older, I've kind of stepped out of the tool crusades. Like I'm tired, I don't want to argue anymore. Um, if if people want to use Trello, use Trello. If you want to use Jira, use Jira. Azure DevOps from Microsoft actually looks pretty nice now. Like they actually have. I mean, there's a few nuances where I'm kind of a picky old curmudgeon where I'm like, ah, why are you estimating hours for tasks? Okay, I can let that go. Um, as long as I can get to the flow metrics from the tool, I don't care what they're using. Like I I just want to see throughput cycle time, whip limits, and item aging. And if I can have those four things, as a scrum master especially, I can be super effective in helping teams discover where they're struggling and how to get flow efficiency back up. So uh, I'm kind of, I'm bowing out of, of, of a lot of that discussion, but spine model, everyone listening, go to spinemodel.info. I think it's really, really crucial. Yeah, so I, I, I started a long time ago as a project manager. And uh, when, I, when I did my first uh, Scrum project, Confession Time, uh, I actually did it to prove it didn't work, right? I, I wanted to prove to everybody, I'll gonna, I'm going to do it by the book and I'm going to show everybody that this is, you know, the new kids coming up with crazy ideas and it's not going to work. Uh, and uh, I did the first uh, Scrum project or my first Scrum project by the book and and by doing so I, I was a convert at that point i stopped being a project manager these days i call myself a recovering project manager because i do sometimes go back to those ideas and and those uh tools uh but the big difference is is something that ryan pointed to is that what i learned from running the first scrum project is that learning is the role of planning learning not planning as a let's get a plan out like you know a gantt chart or whatever it's learning learning is the goal and here's the thing if you if your goal is learning then planning can't happen once it can't happen right. twice it can't happen three times it has to happen every single day it has to be part of how we work learning needs to be part of how we work and when you think about planning as a learning activity rather than a make commitments activity i'm so happy scrum got the commitment out of the scrum guide because that was like a killer for me 
when you learn that planning is about learning, then the next step is you get rid of all of those crazy ideas of wanting to know everything in advance. No, we don't want to know everything in advance. We want to surface the most important questions first and then tackle those. And then from what we learn, tackle the next most important questions. And this is a completely different cycle than what most organizations implement today, you know, in disguise of Scrum, right? They, they call it Scrum, but what they are really talking is about uh, two-week increments that don't really iterate. They're just incrementing the amount of code written. And then at some point, you'll have system testing that discovers all the bugs. And then you fight, you know, crazily trying to meet the deadline you will never meet because there's so many wrong things with the code and you're just integrating at the end, right? So the, for me, this is the key. We need to go back to this idea that planning is a learning activity. It's not a commitment activity. It's a learning activity. So Vasco, I'm going to turn your idea up to 11. All right, I'm going to steal your, your phrase, right? So what I do when I'm in a leadership role and I have control over the way that projects are reported out, you know, in the U.S., there's typically like a, is a project green, yellow, or red, right? And so when, once all the big upfront planning is done, they typically put a green status on these projects. I make them say red. They're not allowed to report green until they have something delivered and feedback from a customer. You, can, you earn green. And actually, if you do that once, you're, you're yellow. And if you can ship two or three times, you might earn green. Just that one change changes the whole behavior of your, of your delivery organization because now they all want to get to something delivered sooner so they can earn green and get out of the red status, right? I think that's, that's one thing. The other thing there, Vasco, is what I like about the, the flow metrics is that, yes, I agree. We're, we're invested in learning. We're planning constantly. But I think stakeholders are going to come back and say, when will this be done? And we can't avoid that. Mm -hmm. And so what I like mm -hmm. is that um, the cycle time scatter plots, the throughput, item aging, all of those things come together with some Monte Carlo simulations, and we can forecast that. And as long as we say, look, this is what we know today, we're going to replan tomorrow and it might change. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think we can answer that question with data, but also say, look, it's just like the Doppler radar. We're going to learn something, a new weather pattern is going to show up, and we're going to make a new and better decision tomorrow. And that's, a, that's an advantage. That's a good thing, right? The way I teach it to my folks is that if you are a homeowner and you're having some contracting work done, you're having a new kitchen put in, or if you're a car owner and you're having some work done in your car, when you ask for an estimate, you're asking for someone to bake certainty for you. And there's the challenge is that I think we have to stop craving certainty. If we can do that, then we can switch to a model where we say, well, what do you think? Give me ballpark something for me so I know how much this might cost. But I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, when you know what needs to be fixed, when you know what it's going to cost, because right now you don't know, you haven't even looked under the hood yet. You haven't ripped apart my walls to see if there's asbestos or, or uh, you know, knob and tube wiring or whatever you call it. So you can't tell me how, for sure how much it's going to cost. All I ask, the only commitment, I know you don't like this word, Vasco, but I love it. I love the word commitment. The only commitment you're going to make is that as soon as you know that it's different than what we imagine, you tell me. Then I, Mr. and Mrs. Product Owner, will tell you what I want to do. And I'll use your expertise sometimes to say, well, look, I'd really like to get this fixed because it's squeaky. But honestly, if this is a safety issue, it needs to go to the top of the pile because I value safety more. That conversation, that relationship between the builder and the owner 
is an important one to honor. It's a, it's a metaphor, but I still think it's really important to honor it. Now, let me ask you this. How do we get executives or people in, let's say, a project management office to stop valuing certainty? Because until they make that switch, we can talk about this no estimate stuff all day long. We can talk about Scrum as a learning process all day long. But until they're ready to give up the idea that certainty is even possible, I don't think anything will change. What do you think? Well, I, what, this is... So 2020 has pretty much been a, a dumpster fire, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful I'm alive. I'm grateful for you know still having a great life, but 2020 has been tricky. If anyone still believes in certainty after 2020, they're, they're crazy, mm-hmm. right? So I, I mean, I'm going to throw that out there. Every Agile coach now has the best example in the world. Um, you know, just ask these, these executives or these developers or whoever you're talking to, did you have plans in January 2020? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did you do in March? Did you yeah. try to follow the plan? How did March go? Right? No, we we learned and we changed and we inspected and we adapted and we and that's I mean, that's life and those that's your projects. And and whether you realize it or not, you've got a great example there. Um but yeah, yeah I absolutely. Just, the mindset has to shift. I, I agree, Chris. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if we don't show them why, it's our fault. Like I, I'm we actually put a, a chapter in our book, uh, you know. Break, you know, fixing your scrum should not have a management chapter in it. Right. But we had to put a management chapter in it because, you know, we we kept talking. We we mentor and teach a lot of scrum masters. I think Todd and I have put, you know, over two thousand people over the past year and a half, you know, through these classes, and we get a lot of people who, they're like, well, if only management understood. It's like no, 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 no. When now we have to write a management chapter because look, these people are bright people. They, they can get it if we explain it in a way that benefits them, mm-hmm. right? If we, right? If we say, look, we have to replan everything because that's for our daily scrum, they don't care. But if we start talking about, look, we replan daily to give you the best opportunity to make new and better decisions over and over again so that you know big decisions are risky, small decisions keep us out of trouble, isn't that good, dear manager? Suddenly we get their attention. And so I, I think we have to own that too. You know, I think we have I think to... We do. We have to own the fact that if they don't get it, that's our fault. As whether you're an agile coach, which I'm not even sure what that means anymore, uh, or if you're a scrum master, um, it's on us. And I think that's an important mindset shift we have to make. It's not just the stupid manager. It's us not connecting with them in a meaningful way. That's right. It's us not connecting concepts that are meaningful for them. Well, you suggested what does an Agile coach even mean anymore? Here's what I do, see if this is useful to listeners, is every time I get in front of a new crew, it doesn't matter whether it's developers or managers or executives, I say, let me ask you a question. Sitting here in this boardroom right now, you can see the elevators, you can see the washroom. How long do you think it would take you to walk to that washroom? And let's say it would take me about 25 seconds. I say, great. If you're wrong, how wrong would you likely be? And they'd be like, I don't know, 10%, 20% off maybe? I say, great. So you're pretty good at estimating. You can give me a 10%, 20% accuracy estimate. That's fantastic. Let me ask you, how long would it take you to walk, not fly, walk to New York City from here? And they're like, I don't know. And I said, if you give me an answer, how likely are you to be wrong with that answer? They'd be like 100%, 1,000%, 4,000%. And I said, well, what's the difference? How can you, Mr. Excellent Estimator, be so good at estimating the trip to the bathroom? It is a walk after all, but you're so terrible at estimating the walk to New York City. And they always say the same thing. It's bigger. It's more complex, i.e. longer, right? Fraught with who knows what. And we've never done it before. 
Oh. Well, and, and Chris, there's you've just highlighted. There's only two ways to get better at estimates. Uh, three ways, according to Vasco. The Vasco would say, "Don't do them." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I agree. Right on. But I would argue that smaller decisions are easier to comprehend. I think mm -hmm. we all agree on that. But I also think um, sending people to estimation workshops is it's just stupid. It's it's a waste of money. And I'm going to say that it's just it's it's foolish. We don't need to teach devs how to estimate. We right. need to teach. We need to make much smaller decisions that mm -hmm. we can forecast using flow metrics. So, so you know, for all of the, the there's like there's a handful of people that are going to come out against. I still think we should answer when will it be done. You can do that through Monte Carlo simulation and cycle time. We can we, we'll give you your answers, but at the same time, if you want to know what actually makes estimates estimating difficult. Like where, where the uncertainty is, it's all of the organizational dysfunction that teams re, that organizations refuse to solve, right? Because an and estimate and the technology has, dysfunction, the yeah, architecture. yeah, exactly. So a, an estimate has three parts, and most people don't realize this. There's the work, which if we break it down small enough, as to Chris's point, people are really good at estimating small things. I think that's fair. The second part is this idea of like this complication, this this organizational dysfunction. And that's all the reasons we are terrible at our work. And so to Vasco's point, it's technology, it's process, it's um, architecture, all the things that, that drag us down, that, that are really impediments that both agile leaders and scrum masters should be going like crazy to fix. When I, when I teach the PAL course, I'm actually the, one of the stewards for scrum.org for leadership. And so I write the content that goes in the leadership class. I'm, I've written this course to basically teach leaders across the board. Your job is to clear the things that drag teams down. You are to, you are there to remove. And if, if they do that, then estimates get better. And then this third part is like life happening. Like mm -hmm. COVID is just like essential complication of life. You can't plan for that. You adapt to that. So if we're good at making small decisions and you cannot fix um, life happening, the only way to actually get better at estimation, if you choose to, It, to make your forecast even better is to get rid of the organizational garbage that's dragging your teams down. So don't send your teams to, to estimation workshops. That's silly. Learn how to make small decisions and solve your organizational stuff. And suddenly you become more, more predictable. Your forecasts are more reliable, almost like by accident. All right, guys, right, right. we're getting close to the end. So I, I, I'm going to take the leadership here. And uh, uh, I don't want to uh, hijack. Very good. And uh, <laughs> ask you guys, let's finish this with a, a, a resource. Could be a podcast, a book, uh, a blog, whatever. A resource that you want to our listeners to, uh, you know, read into more and, and learn about what you were uh, discussing here on this episode. So, Chris, let's start with you. Wow. I don't know if there's a single resource at the top of my head. I, I would send, here's what I do, Vasco, this is not a word of a lie, is that anytime I'm forced to train people on estimation, for example, I'll do this story point estimation thing. And then I'll say, now, now that you've learned that, go look at this guy, Vasco, and or look at the hashtag no estimates. I'm not kidding. I'm Because it's great that we've learned this because I feel like we needed to. You just weren't 100% ready to let go. So great. Here's some training wheels for your bike. But now go look at this guy because this is where you want to end up. And I'm going to hold you accountable to making small movements towards that. Um, beyond that, I mean, I run my own online education program for leaders called The Forge. So I always try to draw people into my program because my philosophy is based on vision first, vision, value, those kinds of things, service. Then how do you focus work? 
What's the right way to take work like a Navy SEAL would, for example? How do you take impossible things and break them down into things so that suddenly they become possible? And to do so responsibly while balancing risk and outcomes. And I think that's what maybe banks struggle with more, but startups and smaller enterprises normally get. So I feel like my, you know, between the three of us and Ryan, anytime someone wants, like, where's a great podcast to really learn how to do Scrum? It's like, go watch Ryan. (laughs) Which is why I wanted to have this call specifically with you guys. All right. How about you, Ryan? One resource. Well, I, I... So I've kind of been, I've kind of hooked on two topics uh, during this. A lot of it is the forecasting and the and the and the flow metrics. If that interested you, the book "When Will It Be Done" by Daniel Vacanti is is amazing. I, I think that's one of the most underrated but most important books that agilists and leaders should be reading. Um, if some of the ideas around fixing Scrum and architectures and things like that um, appeal to you, the shameless plug is of course fixing your Scrum. Practical solutions to common Scrum problems. You know, Todd and I wrote that, and uh, we put our combined 40 years of experience dealing with these problems into the book. I think you'll like it, but I, I think it would be one of those two books, um, depending on what's uh, what's going on. The third bonus will be the SpineModel.info. So SpineModel.info, check that out. There's some really cool stuff. Absolutely. So, you. Uh, yeah, from for my side, I would like to bring everybody to the root, to the core, to the es- essence of Agile, which started with businesses that depended on software to thrive and survive. So I call them um, uh, software-powered business models. Mm-hmm. And if you are in such a business, then uh, Kent Beck, Extreme Programming Explained, you yep. can't go any further without understanding extreme programming. Uh, and, and of course, once you're done with that, there's uh, Extreme Contracts by Jacopo Romei, the No Estimates book by myself. There's also Alan Kelly, who's been writing about no projects, um, a, a very important aspect we didn't even touch in this episode. Oh, my God. Uh, so definitely extreme programming explained by Kent Back the original uh, version, so edition one, if you can find it, otherwise edition two, but I think he went to Esoteric in, in the second edition, so I, I would definitely stick to the first if, if, if I can. Nicely said. You know, I don't know if you guys read Outside the Realm very often, but Seth Godin's new book, I think, is called The Practice, and it's all about how what we understand as agile concepts of failure to leap, insistence on over-planning, and all of the excuses about why we shouldn't start today are going to keep you from producing your art. Now, he's a marketing guy, and he's probably more interested. When he says art, he's talking about a great you know, culinary experience or an artistic experience, like a great album. But the same thing applies. And if you can take it out of the technology forum and bring it into you know, the innovation forum or the creativity forum, it really drives it home that this is a problem of people in groups. I always say there's no such thing as agile problems, only human problems. And if you want to really understand how these mindset failures really affect humanity, look outside our realm and into so, um, you know areas outside of business. Yeah, so so definitely. And uh, I, I would second that just uh, because you said it, it's about humans, uh, Agile for Humans, the podcast, Ryan uh, Ripley, yeah, heard of uh, uh, amazing podcast, uh, great guy too, uh, great guests, uh, Chris Williams, badass Agile, and, uh, and of course... And of course, the uh, Scrum Master Toolbox podcast. And uh, this is is a shared episode. You will hear this episode in all three podcasts. Uh, It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your generosity with your time and your knowledge. 
thank you all. And hey, guys, you know, the world needs more of this stuff. We, we need to, to join forces and solve because we can say it here and affect one or two people. But until this message gets bigger and becomes the gold standard for agile conversation, nothing will really change and it needs to change. So I hope we can do this again. I've really enjoyed it. Likewise, let's uh, let's do this again soon. Mm-hmm.